Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, we have a couple of very, very busy people uh, with us today. Paul Anderson, CEO of Network 10, and Beverly McGarvey, Chief Content Officer at 10. Just off the back yesterday of a huge upfronts presentation, 1,500 people in Sydney showed up to hear what 10's grand plans are for next year, programming and commercial initiatives. Uh, some big plans uh, on both sides, actually. And uh, I guess we'll cover a little bit around the patchy performance uh, for 10 in the ratings, uh, in the, at least in the first quarter, and how that might have bounced back uh, somewhat and significantly, actually, with some of the new shows. But first, uh, Paul Anderson, uh, the really interesting thing you talked about in the last uh, month or so is your interest and intent to get back into some sports rights, some big sports rights. What's your intent? What's going on there? Well, look, first of all, thanks for having us. Uh, look, I mean, we love this this week. Um, so it gives us a chance to talk about, you know, the things that we promised uh, the, uh, you know, our agencies and advertising partners this time last year. And it also gives us a chance to talk about, you know, all of the good things that we've got coming up for this year. You know, we hear from marketers more and more importantly about the marketing funnel and trying to, uh, you know, drag as many people in at the top of that funnel that are relevant to their brands. Um, and what we would say is that, you know, uh, whilst we may not have the biggest numbers in total people, what we have is an audience that is stacked full of under 50s. Uh, but more importantly for a lot of marketers, is stacked full of those 13 to 29s and 16 to 39s that are very, very difficult to get hold of. Um, look, on sports rights... Um, Melbourne Cup is a great example, uh, and Rugby World Cup for that matter, where, you know, where sports rights come up, we've bid, um, and, you know, we, we, we bid, bid obviously very competitively and won both of those. So uh, both of them, you know, coming up in the next um, in the next month or so, or Rugby World Cup, we're, you know, midstream at the moment, and both have sold very well. So what that says is that, you know, event-driven entertainment, in particular sport, works very, very well. So, uh, And we re- we remain interested in sports rights as they come up. I'll come back to that in a sec, but sure. w- what do you say to the critics, though, Paul, who say, oh, well, 10 overspent on the Melbourne Cup? You have a few secret formulas there about some of the things you're doing with the Melbourne Cup. It's beyond what many may think is just a conventional play. Yeah, look, we won't go into the commercial arrangements, but what I would say is that the business case that we put together internally, we've exceeded in year one. So that augurs very well for the future. Um, I think we have an amazing relationship with the VRC and we've unlocked a lot of value uh, for our network. So when you talk about unlocking value, Paul, what's different about this arrangement that went before it? Look, I think there's different ranges of advertising categories uh, that the Melbourne Cup Carnival in particular brings uh, that 10 hasn't played in that space before. Uh, I also think just working with an organisation like the VRC uh, where you, you you have a common interest in promoting an event uh, works for both parties. Yesterday was a big day. On the commercial front, you've got a bunch of in- initiatives, including some new data alliances, um, bringing back by 10. That's a flashback from, uh, what was it, the late 90s, I guess, was it? And it's, and it's back. It, it it's was a good a, one, though. It's a good one. Well, <laughs> it, was, it was good then and it's now coming back. So just maybe just run through for marketers and, and, the, and the media, or the marketing and media agency community, the key things that you said to the market yesterday in your presentations on, on those commercial initiatives, data first, I guess. 
Data first. So, look, I think we said last year that we were investing in data, uh, and you know this is part of the strategy with CBS, where we are, you know, investing for the for the long term, not just for the next twelve months. Um, so, we've now built our data platform. Um, we've announced three data partnerships. Uh, the first one is around purchasing behaviour uh, and intent, particularly in terms of financial services, retail, and FMCG. Uh, we have a partnership with IOTA, which is uh, credit card information, and we have a partnership with Greater Data, lots of datas, uh, which is really premium demographic data. Uh, the best way to explain that is that so you have certainty as, as an advertiser, if you are targeting a 50-year-old, they are a 50-year-old. Okay. The Buy 10 initiative, uh, that's going to allow the market to both plan and trade across all your assets, all the channels. Is that right? Have I got that yeah. right? That's right. So, um, look, one of the things that we need to do for marketers uh, and agencies is to make it easy for them to buy us. So, um, I think everyone understands what Buy 10 used to be. Uh, so, what Buy 10 um, allows us to do is to trade dynamically. So, if you are looking to buy an audience, you can buy that audience. We will deliver 101% of what you order um, and it just it makes the whole process efficient. And how does this, Paul, work into what the the, the broadcasters uh, as a market are talking about in trying to do a cross-industry initiative? Does this have any involvement or any role in this or is it completely separate? Look, I think it's a way of the whole industry trying to m just make it easier to buy television. So lots of studies that Think TV have done, which have said that television, in some cases, the only medium that provides a return on investment, uh, what we haven't been great at as an industry is actually making it easy to buy us. Um, so this is another step. Look, it's not across the whole industry, but you know that we, we are the only other player in the market outside of Nine that can do this. And give us a tip. Do you think ultimately we'll see some sort of whole industry initiative, Paul Anderson? Well, that's the ambition, you know, I think, as an industry. Look, there's a lot of good work going on in the industry. Um, think TV is a great example of that. Uh, but that's not to say there shouldn't be more collaboration and, um, you know, we're obviously working hard to do that. So the partnership, the other partnership you, you announced was UI. What is that? Well, it does two things. So one, it just standardises the way that, uh, that we build all of our apps across all the various streaming devices. Um, and it unlocks a whole lot of opportunities around um, advertising for our clients. So at the moment, you've got pre-rolls and mid-rolls. Uh, the best example of what this can do outside of just making life easier for us internally building apps, um, if you pause a show and go and make a cup of tea, an ad will pop up uh, as you pause it, as you pause the program. So right. what it allows you to do is control the pixels on the screen. Beverly McGarvey, um, some pretty uh, heartening developments in the last couple of weeks with some of the shows you've launched, The Masked Singer being one of them and, and Bachelor going very well. Um, earlier in the year, it was a bit patchy for 10. It, it looks like there's a little bit of a, uh, a comeback or a, a return to some good results. What's going on on the, on the programming side and, and uh, in viewers' terms? Well, we had a really good start to the year. We had I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here do really good numbers in January. It beat the cricket every night it was on. It beat the tennis five out of nine nights. And then we went into a period where we launched some new brands um, and some of them worked and some of them didn't, which is kind of to be expected when you take big swings, you know, not all of them land. So we're very happy with the balance of what worked. Obviously, shows like Takeaway and Changing Rooms did not perform the way that we would have liked. However, I'm a Celebrity Great, Dancing with the Stars is coming back. So we had a lot of foundation work that has been done. 
Um, at last year's Upfront, we talked a lot about doing um, a 50-week schedule and talking to that under-50s audience 50 weeks a year. And we feel now that we have really laid the foundation for that. So coming out of that period, we went into MasterChef. Um, and then at the end of MasterChef, we had Survivor and then Bachelor. And now we're into The Masked Singer. So I think when you look back across the year, it would be fair to say that we had a relatively... Um, strong start. Then we had a period, we had a couple of things work and a couple of things not. Um, the great thing is that we know we have fixed that problem for next year. So this time next year in that slot, we will have Survivor All-Stars. And Survivor is kind of an incredible tool to have to program against other constructed reality shows. It brings a really solid audience. You know the type of viewers who are going to watch it. It offers a genuine alternative to the other constructed reality shows. A they're different types of people. And also this year, Survivor was up 10% in its fourth season, which is really quite incredible. And also the demographic performance is really phenomenal. So although we made a few mistakes at the top of the year, we know that we've fixed those moving into Q1 in 2020. So uh, moving through the rest of the year, obviously we're in the mass singer period now, which is great and is performing extremely well, particularly in demo. I think having a family-friendly show that is a few times a week that you can engage in with your whole family. And even if you've got a teenager, it's kind of cool. And if you've got little kids or, you know, an older relative, there really is something in it for everybody. And it's properly original. There's not that much properly original stuff out there. And Mass Singer is properly original. So that's really exciting. And obviously we'll have that back same time next year. Well, it did, it did Bev, um, surprise a few people that the results on the Mass Singer, because I, I've been having conversations before, it was like, oh, I don't know about that one. And Wish Gear Off, uh, it's, it's delivered. Was there any debate, any discussion, any, any questions in your mind about this is a punt or you thought it's going to work because of the reasons you just said? You know, there's no such thing as a sure thing. <laughs> so, of course, there's always an element of doubt. But when you add up all the elements of Mass Singer, um, it's really fun. It's really bright. Arsher's a great host. We have a great panel. They have such natural chemistry. Um, all of those people in the panel bring something different. So when you we kind of put all the pieces of the jigsaw together and that still doesn't mean it's going to work. But once we saw the recordings and it felt really fun and it had good buzz, we were pretty confident that it would do a really solid number. And sometimes it takes our shows a couple of years to build. Um, so for this to come out of the gate so strong has probably surprised us a little bit on the upside, which is really nice but that you know if anybody says they know for sure what a show's going to rate before it launches they are lying you just don't know until you do it you get their autograph right if they if they're on the money so you had um uh, a bunch of uh, announcements yesterday for the shows coming through your major franchises are back including the masked singer will be back next year obviously uh, drama you've got a few new ones in there but just mm. the standout picks for you for for next year we won't go through them all but yep. what what are, what are your your kind of your favourite or your standout picks for what you've done? Um, in terms of comedy and drama? Yes, yeah. Okay, so I think the really interesting dramas next year are, um, first of all, Five Bedrooms. We had a great year with Five Bedrooms this year. It is incredibly difficult to get drama to work well on right. free-to-air, particularly if you're looking at overnight ratings. You really have to look at the consolidated numbers to get a true picture of how your dramas are engaging audiences. So Five Bedrooms was excellent. It was critically acclaimed and much loved and had a really good consolidated audience. So that's back. Great cast and we've got great scripts. Um, the other thing that's probably worth mentioning at this stage is we have a project called The Secret She Keeps and that's a thriller and it's very different to the other sorts of dramas that are on air. It's a short run, it's an event and I think just getting people in to that really hooky thriller type stuff is something that's a little bit different for us and it, you know, you're know you in and you're out, you don't have to commit to 14 weeks. So um, they're probably at this point the two things that are really jumping out. We also have a spectacular comedy 
comedy slate next year. We can have a legacy of comedy at 10. And we have all the, you know, the stuff that we have this year, the having paying attention, the Husey, the goggle box, all that stuff that we love that does really well. Um, we're bringing back Kinney. Um, which is really interesting, that short-form drama that does well on all platforms and kind of breaks new talent, that's great. And also we're doing Drunk History, which actually came from Pilot Week in 2018. And again, great platform for comedy talent and a little bit different. And it actually is a little bit scripted, so you get some quota, but it's also really interesting. And it's the sort of thing, it's important for us to have some shows in the schedule that are shows that you wouldn't see on the others. And I think something like Drunk History is something that you probably would think that could really only be on 10. You're you're always uh, got some good observations on what's going on with genres and uh, viewer behaviour and, and what they're doing, what they're wanting. W- what are you seeing at the moment and what are you seeing for the next 12 to 24 months in terms of where the demand is or w- how viewer habits are changing? I think what we have seen this year is a little bit of fatigue in what we would call the big legacy brands. Um, you know, us and Seven and Nine, we've all seen that. So I think in order to keep your schedule fresh, you have to have um, an interesting mix of shows at all stages of their life cycle. That's not necessarily a genre thing, but I think, you know, we have Mass Singer, Nine Hard Lego Masters. You've got to have shows that are new as well as shows that are kind of mid-cycle, things like Bachelor that have been on for, you know, six years, and then the really mature brands, your MasterChefs and your Blocks and those sorts of shows and your MKRs. So for us, it is about the mix of freshness and familiarity that really keeps people interested. Within that, in Australia, there is still a massive audience for constructed reality. And I think the reason for that is, first of all, you see Australians reflected back at you doing different things, but there is such a wide range of really quality constructed reality in Australia that the genre is much bigger than it is in other markets. So you get dating, you get cooking, you get singing. So you get all different sorts of things. And I don't think that trend will discontinue next year. I think audiences in Australia particularly have an appetite for those constructed reality shows to a degree. They're kind of soap operas in a way that you see a group of characters and you see their story, but there's an end point which is quite satisfying for audiences. Um, the real challenge in free to air is to engage audiences in scripted content. And I think we just have to accept that the overnight ratings for scripted content are never going to be what they once were. But if people choose to watch Five Bedrooms on Template, then we are good with it. And we design shows in that way. I think we also have to be clever in when we design story arcs, etc., that we acknowledge that some people might watch three episodes together, not just one and not eight. You have to really think about the cycle of how people are consuming your content. Um, so that's probably a particularly scripted thing. But the other thing that we're seeing this year, particularly with Mass Singer, is the um, seven-day numbers for reality shows are really starting to build. Seven-day numbers for constructed reality, like um, Bachelor, have always been excellent. But for performance shows, it's been slightly different. So Mass Singer has a very solid overnight audience, but also a spectacular seven-day audience. So there are people who are watching it on template, probably so that they can engage in that social guessing game buzz. Um, so you're really starting to see the numbers lift on the other platforms now for effectively everything. And it used to be genre specific and now it's virtually everything. So this is the big this is the big issue, right? It's consolidated and, 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 and cross-platform, your multi-platform um, audience numbers. Is the market, and Paul might have some views on this as well, is the market starting to get their head around that and behave differently and acknowledge that there is a longer arc in terms of the delivery of, of, of audiences to these shows? How, how far away are you from where it's the ideal 
Yeah, look, I think there is, and, and, and partly that's been up to us to educate the market. You know, there's too much focus on overnight numbers, there's too much focus on total people. So what we promote each day in terms of, uh, you know, the total view of how audiences have consumed our content is super important. So, you know, we have a what we call now is a playground of assets. So whether it's your linear viewing, whether it's your long-form catch-up, um, you know, ad-free, your short-form um, news and entertainment on 10 daily um, or your SVOD with 10 all access. So there's a there's a cycle there um, and there's lots of options, one for viewers to view that content um, and there's also lots of options for, for advertisers how they can reach their audiences, some with data, some with mass reach. The market, uh, it's been tough all year for everyone, by the way, not just uh, television. It's really tough out there right now. There was, a, there was uh, some expectation that perhaps we might see uh, a little bit of light for the December quarter. What's your sense on what's going on now? And um, this grand old chestnut conversation, is it cyclical or is it structural? But um, your thoughts on that and, and then the December quarter, is there any light at the tunnel for the market generally and for television and for 10? Look, I think um, the general commentary out there is that the back quarter of this year looks more positive. We've been through an interesting year, I guess, given, um, you know, we've had an election. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty before that election as to who was going to be in government. Uh, and, you know, that was probably a surprise that um, to, to most. So, and we've had, you know, depressed economic conditions as well. So we're in this vortex now, I think, where, you know, interest rates are so low um, that's stimulating the economy and marketing, you know, dollars, you know, flow first and foremost off the back of that when there's a, an up to upswing uh, and also when there's a downturn. So I think there's some green shoots given, you know, we've obviously got a stable government now. Um, there's lots of uh, different levers being pulled in terms of trying to stimulate that economic activity. And we're seeing that we think the October market will probably be flat to, to, um, to hopefully seeing a little bit of growth at the back end of the year. Um, and also I think, you know, there's a lot of commentary, there's a lot of pressure on industries being disrupted that, uh, you know, there is a general realisation that you can't cost cut your way to prosperity. So, and, you know, marketing is a big one. It's an easy target for companies to, to, to chop. Uh, but I think it's been proven that that is the wrong decision. You know, that is not the place to be, um, to be cutting costs if you want to grow the top line. Are you getting um, support from the market or how do you see the support from the market across your, across your multiple channels? I, I look at some of your numbers here. 10 Play was August was your best month ever, up 61% 10 daily, best uh, month ever for August. 10 All Access um, was also your best month in August. So August was a good month, at least on the, on the numbers. Um, so I might, actually, might just ask, um, All Access, how, how is that? going? What, what is going on there in terms of the subscription stuff? That's a very busy area at the moment. It is a busy area and getting busier, I think, as we, you know, as we head towards the end of the year with more platforms being launched. Um, so look, the great thing for us is that we have a platform that we've launched in this market. Um, it's growing. It has around 7,000 episodes of content. Uh, it, has a, it has a great platform, so a really good viewing experience. Uh, so we've got the base there now. You know that the streaming sector, I'm, I'm sure, is going to evolve quite quickly in the next 12 to 24 months, and I don't think anyone has an answer to do that. Uh, but what we have is a is a place at the table, uh, and we have you know one of the biggest media companies in the world uh, that's the architect of that platform. You know, and we're part of that 
part of that play. And so the content strategy for that, I guess, in terms of getting subscribers, it's all about the content. You see a lot of the streaming companies um, use the fancy uh, news shows to get customers on, but in, interestingly, it's mostly a lot of the back catalogue that drives consumption um, in the end of 60 70%, even on Netflix, as I understand it. You know, it's big back catalogue, but the news shows get the people in. What, what is yeah, your... that's a really good point. And, um, you know, I, I think we've just announced in this last week that, um, you know, we've just bought Friends for our multi-channel. So we've got Friends and Seinfeld now, which are two of the the biggest streaming properties in the world, and they are on free-to-air television. So I think, you know, that's, um, you know, we know that we, you know, everything is driven by content irrespective of which platform you have it on. And there's this fascination with a lot of the streaming platforms that, as you say, there's big shows to suck people in, but what drives that is a lot of this back catalogue. So, you know, we're playing in that space uh, and it's free. So that's something we've got to do to promote that um, better as well. Bev, you'll be fascinated with this one. You talked about friends. Um, I've got an 18-year-old. His whole set, they're all surfies, his whole set are now doing the entire back catalogue of friends. It's all go and they're, they're, they're watching it. And I sit there and go, what's going on there? What's going on? This is the kids doing stuff that we were doing 20 years ago. What's, the, what's going on there? Well, I think there's a big body of content out there now that people just haven't discovered yet. Like younger audiences are discovering The Office, they're discovering Seinfeld. And I think that's one of the great things about the multi-platform play that we're all making at the minute, I think you can surface content that we wouldn't have been able to surface a number of years ago. So once something was done, it was done. And there's amazing series that younger audiences just haven't seen. So as Paul said, we have Friends and um, Seinfeld on our free-to-air multi-channels. But also there's things like every episode of Survivor on All Access. So you think how many series of Survivor there are and how, you know, those epic series with Boston Rob and all those sorts of things. Like new audiences can now discover that because of the way that the new platforms are um, kind of trafficking on audiences around things. So something like, you know, your 18-year-old will find friends and go, fantastic, there's 10 series of this I've never seen. So I think it's a really good opportunity um, to utilise, you know, inventory in the way that we haven't been able to, you know, um, content inventory in the way that we haven't been able to before. We've just put things like Rush up on template. So, you know, Rush was very successful when it was on here, but it's probably like 12 years old now, yeah, so right. anybody under a certain age has never seen Rush, you know. Tell me about, um, you, you, Ten has been very strong uh, in the in the social platforms, uh, pushing p- both social engagement and conversation around the shows. Um, is that continuing? And, and I'm really interested to know, what is the strategy there? Is it a marketing strategy uh, and does it bring viewers back to whatever platform, whatever Ten's platforms are, are there? Does it get them back or are they staying on the socials and just con- consuming there? It, they're doing both. They're on the socials and they're watching the show. I think the thing for us, um, social is marketing and it's kind of, it's more than that though. So if people are more engaged in your show, they are of course more likely to watch it. And if they watch three minutes of it and it's great, then they're more likely to watch 20 minutes of it. So I think you've kind of got to be bold with the social stuff and put your content out there and believe that the content is strong enough that it will bring them back. And the evidence that we have is the bigger a show is on social and the noisier it is generally, they do come back unless it's a very particularly niche brand. But things like The Bachelor go really well on social. Survivor goes really well on social. The Mass Singer has, of course, gone nuts on social. But it is very, um, how we manage that is quite strategic and what different platforms we use for different shows and how we engage with different partners on different shows is quite measured and also a constant evolution. So for the first time on Mass Singer, um, we have a partnership with TikTok, which targets kind of under 18s and um, an audience that are almost too young to be on Twitter and, you know, 
Instagram isn't cool if you're a certain age and Facebook certainly isn't cool if you're a certain age, but those those platforms are important to other um, parts of our audience, but it's hard to, for us to engage with teenagers. So being able to do some partnerships with a company like TikTok is excellent and it's the first time we've done it and it's been really successful. And it just, But it just goes to show, doesn't it, how complex and it's getting. You've got so many different channels to deal with as a, as a content producer and, and distributor and uh, I guess uh, you have to carve out different types of content for those platforms. So there's a lot in doing that stuff, isn't there? Absolutely. And it is a real challenge making sure that you have the right content on the right platform and that the duplication is on purpose in terms of if we put up a three-minute clip here and we put it here, that we're doing that for the right reason. So you do have to be um, very careful about how what that customer journey looks like and how people are consuming things. And to be honest, I think nobody has quite nailed it completely. And it is, again, different with every show. So what we know is with any particular show that this, for example, this range of social engagement is right for The Bachelor. That doesn't mean it's right for Mass Singer or Survivor. But every year that we go through it, we learn a few more things. And the other thing with social platforms, of course, is, you know, um, trends change. So just when you think you've nailed it, then you've got to move forward. But that's also what keeps it really interesting. So we have um, this year engaged a social media director who works you know in concert with our marketing team and our on-air promotions team um because that social piece is so important to us now and of course with the digital team so all of those people at 10 work together and what we've discovered is if we have a big hit show on 10 it helps everything so you know you talked about the good numbers for 10 play and 10 daily in august and partly that's because both bachelor and survivor are on at the same time and those shows engage audiences on um, different platforms and also because there's two brands then you get the benefit of if you've got a show on for five nights it's one brand but we've got a show on for a couple of nights each then you get two brands and you can amplify that and build your other platforms around that. Um, Bev talked about constructed reality uh, Paul and uh, this one of the strengths of 10 is, is some of these brand integrations that, that you do and for next year how are the brand partnerships looking how are the partnerships with marketers in integrating into the shows or around the shows is it you taking that to the next level, what are we going to see next year? Yeah, I think it is through our 10 Imagine team, which is part of the sales uh, the, the sales operation. You know, sales have only been back in house for I think it's nine months now. So, um, you know, I can't speak highly enough of sort of what they've done to start from a standing start, which, uh, you know, I think in, in any terms has been a really, really difficult thing to do. Um, and as you know, we've got a great uh, team in 10 Imagine led by Mike Stanford um, and being back and re-engaging with the market and, you know, and clients directly understanding what they want and then how they can fit into our shows that are relevant to their brands. Okay. The next 12 months uh, for the broader market, for both of you, what could be one of the biggest curveballs or surprises that, that might be out there? Have a bit of fun with it. Just go, go, knock yourselves out, go wild. But what could happen? Um, you know what I would love to happen in the next 12 months is that the general sentiment and conversation around Freedy Air TV was like, there's great shows on Freedy Air TV and they're really cool and we're going to watch them. Because I think what the SVOD services have done so well is brand themselves as being um, the must-watch content. And, you know, when you talk to people, they can name three shows that they watch on an SVOD service and they can name 20 shows they watch across 7, 9, 10 and, you know, the Freedy Airs. And I think we have not done a good enough job at marketing and our, marketing ourselves to consumers and being brands that feel like they're really engaging for audiences. So I would be thrilled and excited if people in the street were going, I'm going to watch Freddie Air TV, it's really cool. So um, it might be a curveball though. I don't know if it's going to happen. It's a, well, it's a, but it is a great point, it's a great point. So hey, listen, um, you guys have got to go and do some more important stuff than talk in a studio for, for the next uh, day. So thank you both and uh, we look forward to seeing uh, what happens in the next couple of months with 10. Thank you. Thanks. 
MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Jennifer Goggin. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button to get a free notification every time we release a new episode.